1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
2: Hello, welcome to this month's BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm the magazine's editor, Dave Musgrave, and this, of course, is the podcast of BBC History Magazine. If you've never had a chance to read the magazine, never fear, now's your chance, because this month we're giving away a free copy of our August issue to the first 100 people to call in. All you need to do is call 0844 848 0098, quoting the code Free 808 and you'll be sent a free copy of the mag. Unfortunately, this is only available to UK residents, uh, but it's a great offer. Now, back to the podcast, coming up this issue... The fact that the English king called himself King of France was a
3: constant
4: reminder of the defeats of the past.
2: That's Professor Anne Curry, who's taking us back to 1420 in the time machine this month.
3: It doesn't necessarily answer questions, but it does make you look at it from a completely different perspective.
2: And that was Ruth Goodman, who spent part of the last year living on a Victorian farm in Shropshire.
5: After Cook was killed in Hawaii... We all felt as though we'd lost
2: our father. And finally, I've been finding out what's new to say about Captain Cook. Now let's hear from Deputy Editor Sue Wingrove on this month's competition.
6: We've got a great competition for podcast listeners this month. The British Museum is opening its latest blockbuster exhibition all about the Roman Emperor Hadrian. We've a feature in the August issue about the man and his times. Hadrian is, of course, most famous in Britain for building the wall that bears his name. This month we've got a competition where you can win a prize of two nights dinner, bed and breakfast at Matt Fen Hall Hotel, not far from Hadrian's Wall, along with entry into two of the attractions nearby. Go to www.bbchistorymagazine.com and click on the podcast competition box. You'll see we're asking you one question that you'll know the answer to if you've listened to the podcast. Give us the right answer and you'll be entered in a draw to win.
2: The winner of the Simon Sharma audiobook competition from last month was Janet Scott from Knaresborough, which has a lovely uh, ruined castle looking out over the River Nid. And also, I think it's got the uh, oldest chemist shop in England there. Uh, But Knaresborough is quite a long way from Trois, uh, but that's where Professor Anne Curry wants to go in the BBC History magazine Time Machine, uh, back to the year 1420. Rob Attar's been finding out why. Why do you want to go back to 1420?
4: Uh, Well, because it's the year in which the Treaty of Troyes was sealed between Henry V and uh, the French, and it promised the possibility of a double monarchy of France and England. I mean, had it ever come about in the form envisaged, it would have actually meant that instead of having a double monarchy of England and Scotland, as we did from 1603, it actually would have been a union of the crowns of France and England from the early 15th century and the, the, the course of European history after that point could have been very different.
7: So why didn't that happen in the end?
4: It didn't happen because unfortunately Henry V died within uh, just over two years after the treaty. He died prematurely. I mean he wasn't all that old he was only in his 30s and uh, that left a nine-month-old baby as the king of the double monarchy and that uh, you know, it just was not very practical if you're claiming to be king of a double monarchy you actually need to be there in person he does eventually go when he's uh, nine years old and he gets himself crowned in paris but it's just not as successful as if henry v had survived but i think if henry v had survived then uh, it would have been possible to have had this double monarchy in reality rather than just as a treaty
7: who would you like to speak to in 1420
4: I think the French, in order to sort of see why on earth they came to this treaty, because really it means they're allowing the English to win the Hundred Years' War. Uh, after the claim to the French throne goes back to 1340, when uh, Edward III declared himself King of France in Ghent. And uh, essentially by the French agreeing to allow Henry V to be the heir to the French throne and by agreeing that when the King of France, Charles VI, died, Henry V would become King of France and that thereafter, for time, you know, in perpetuity, the two crowns of England and France would be held by the same person. I mean, it's giving away French independence, really. It's, it's showing the English are one.
7: Who was behind this decision by the French?
4: I think we need to look into French politics to understand it. The trouble was that throughout Henry V's invasions, there had been great divisions in French society as for political factions. This is caused really by the fact that Charles VI, the king, had started to go mad in the 1390s. But by the time Henry V invaded in 1415, uh, of course, won the Battle of Agincourt, there were major divisions between the Burgundians, essentially the cousin of uh, the king and the Armagnac group, uh, initially led by his nephew, the Duke of Orleans. Orleans was captured at Agincourt, but the party continued after that. In fact, by 1420, it was the Dauphin, the last surviving Dauphin Charles, later became Charles VII, who was heading the Armagnac party. And the rivalry between these two groups, the Burgundians and the Armagnacs, was absolutely incredible. They should have got together to try to root out the English uh, they tried to do this but they failed to do it and they failed to do it in a pretty spectacular fashion. In uh, September 1419 they agreed to meet the Dauphin the Duke of Burgundy were going to meet on a bridge at Montereau just to the southeast of Paris. The Duke of Burgundy went out into the middle of the bridge expecting to meet the Dauphin in the middle. You can see sort of high security in all of this and in fact what happened was the Duke of Burgundy was assassinated. He had a pickaxe put through his head and that meant really Really that this allowed the English into France. I mean, in the early 16th century, by the way, the French king was shown the skull of the Duke of Burgundy, who uh, had been killed on this bridge at Montereau in September 1419. And uh, Francis I was apparently was told, that's the hole through which the English got into France. So as a result of this assassination, the Burgundians allied with the English, and together they agreed to this treaty. But, I mean, Henry seems to be the one behind the idea of the treaty. So... So I'd like to talk to the French as to why on earth they should uh, agree to giving away their independence, so to speak.
7: If you did ask them why they'd done it, do you have any idea what they might tell you?
4: I think that they might uh, not be keen to tell me why they'd done it. I think that they might uh, privately say we had no choice. The English were nearly at Paris at this point. They'd carried all before them. They were militarily extremely successful. I think perhaps they thought the English could actually conquer France anyway, and therefore already they'd lost. They didn't have an army to fight against him. I think they might also say it was because the Burgundians wanted revenge, i.e. it turns the war into a... A vendetta, if you like, against the Armagnacs. So they might say it was due to that. I don't think they'd come up with any high-flown principles, really. It's, it's all a rather grubby thing, and actually something that happens pretty quickly. In the murder on the bridge at Montreux was the 10th of September, 1419. The treaty is ratified in the Cathedral of Troyes on the 21st of May, 1420. That's pretty quick for uh, negotiations to be undertaken, actually, and for the whole thing to be sorted out. It's actually quite a long treaty. Uh, lots of other clauses in it
7: is there anything you'd like to ask Henry
4: I think I'd say to him, are you surprised you've done so well? If you look at his negotiating that had been going on in the summer of 1419, okay, he's been extremely successful militarily. He's won that battle in 1415. He's managed to hold on to Harfleur. He's entered Normandy again in 1417. He's conquered Normandy. After a six-month siege of Rouen, he's managed to take the Norman capital. He's starting to move up the River Seine. He would no doubt say, well, look at my achievements so far. But I would be saying, yeah, but could you have conquered Paris, Paris, did it take you six months to take Rouen, could you really have taken Paris, one of the biggest cities in Europe at this point in time? So he might have had reservations about that. And we know there's a say in the summer of 1419, what he was negotiating for on the basis of these military successes was Normandy to be held exclusively and in full sovereignty by him, i.e. would have taken Normandy away from France and Gascony as well, south of France, that the English had had a claim to since the late 12th century. So it seemed to be a territorial settlement he was going for, very much in the line of what his predecessors, as kings of England, had wanted to do. The idea of him actually becoming King of France, I find it hard to believe that he'd ever taken it seriously. That probably would tell me that he had taken it seriously, for from the moment of his accession as King of England in uh twenty second of March fourteen thirteen he'd called himself King of France as well. But even so, you know, had he really thought he would become King of France or even heir to France. So uh, you know, it would be interesting to know whether he would give me a straight answer because of course once you're successful, you're probably not going to uh, divulge all the anxieties You've had and the lesser aims you've entertained in the past.
7: Would he see this as the highlight of his career?
4: I think he would very much. So he was followed as well by the marriage a few days later to Catherine, the daughter of the French king, and he would be very optimistic for the future. In December, they made a big entry into Paris. He, alongside Charles VI, I think he would be feeling this is it, you know, I've only got to wait for this madman. Now, he was born in 1366, so I mean, he's nearly in his 60s. By this point, I think he thought it's only a matter of time. And anyway, I'm regent in the meantime, because Charles the 6th was incapable of ruling and the fifth was not only meant heir to the throne of France but regent of France as well, he's actually in control, I mean I think he would feel he'd achieved a great deal in this. He might have been a bit worried that immediately after he'd sealed the treaty he actually had to go off and conquer a few more places that were holding out under the Dauphin as the leader of the opposition to the treaty and the first place incidentally he went to was Montreuil, the place where the bridge had been on which this assassination had taken place then he goes on to Melon and that takes uh, about five months to capture. Perhaps he uh, might have been by the end of the year thinking, but hmm, it's not going to be so easy to do this. But one of the clauses in the treaty uh, is quite amazing because remember it's a peace treaty. But one of the clauses says that the war will continue until the Armagnacs are completely destroyed. You know, and that all the French will help me in this war. So it's a peace treaty that actually commits him to to future war. So I would no doubt be wanting to ask him, how are you going to win this war, and do you think you can win?
7: this war. In the end, he died before he got the chance to win the war.
4: Uh, Yeah, because he dies, because in 1422... he's still actually trying to fight the war, you know. He nips back to England at the beginning of 1421 to get his wife crowned queen and uh, then he has to come back to France because his brother, Thomas Duke of Clarence, who's been left in control really in his absence, is killed at the Battle of Bougier. perhaps the first indication things are not going to be that easy. He comes back, he really has to spend most of his time in the field and in the summer of 1422 he's at the Siege of Meaux. he contracts dysentery and he dies. So he dies as a result of the war, really as a result of his having to uh, participate in fighting. Because the trouble is that the treaty actually generates hostility within France. I mean, it may have been agreed by the king, the Duke of Burgundy, all the nobles and bishops of the north of France, but the treaty isn't very popular, as you can imagine, uh, in, in most of France. Apparently, when the messengers got to Lyon announcing the treaty, the messengers were killed by the townspeople, so yeah, I could have reckoned it was going to be a pretty uphill struggle.
7: Obviously, Henry died. For a lot, of it could be carried out. But were there any long-term legacies of this treaty?
4: Well, I think we sometimes forget that the English did hold on to northern France with this Burgundian alliance, really through to the middle of the 1430s. You know, we do have this double monarchy. Henry died on the 31st of August, 1422. Charles the Sixth died on the 20th of October, not that much later. So at that point, there was a double monarchy. Even though Henry VI was only nine months old uh, at that point, there was a double monarchy. All of the government of Paris, the government of the north of France, north of the Loire, including Burgundy, was actually conducted in the name of Henry VI, as uh, king of England and uh, of France. The English won two important battles, Cravant in 1423, Verneuil in 1424. So, you know, to all intents and purposes, there was a double monarchy. The problem comes when Joan of Arc appears on the scene in 1429 because that enables the tide of the war to be turned and, more importantly, for the Dauphin, Charles, to be crowned King of France. And that happened on the 17th of July, 1429. Now, that was because everybody believes a lot in the power of anointing a king. That gave the French uh, a great advantage. The English had a problem. They only had a nine-year-old king at that point, a bit too young, perhaps, to be crowned. They had to crown him in England, and then they took him across to France. But by this time, they'd lost Reims, which was the traditional crowning place of the French kings. They couldn't get it back, and eventually, in December 1431, they got Henry VI crowned in Paris. It was a bit of a sort of second-best thing. But even so, he was crowned king in France. So, to all intents and purposes, he was king of France. From 1435-36 onwards, the English start to lose uh, militarily, but the English call themselves King of France right the way through to the Treaty of Amiens in 1802. Every King of France from this point onward calls himself King of France, and arguably, you know, there is still, in theory at least, a, a double monarchy. This treaty was never annulled. So the Treaty of Troyes technically was still in place all the way through to 1802, by which point the French actually didn't have a king anymore because they deposed him in 1789.
7: So for some 400 years, this treaty had an impact on Anglo-French relations?
4: I think it did, because the fact that the English king called himself King of France was a constant reminder of the defeats of the past. And in many ways, the history of Europe from the 14th century onwards is the history of Anglo-French hostility. Very rarely are we in alliance with them. You just need to look at the wars under Louis XIV, the wars that Marlborough was in, the Seven Days War, the rivalries in Canada and India (laughs) and America. You know, what are they about? They're they're hostility and conflict between England and France.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down
1: Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
2: So that's the time machine. Uh, now let's hear Rob's rundown of the three things that history lovers should do this month. Rob, number one.
7: Well, as some listeners may know, next month is the 350th anniversary of Oliver Cromwell's death, and the Cromwell Museum in Huntingdon is marking the occasion with a special exhibition that begins on the 5th of August. It's going to be looking at the death of Cromwell and his extremely elaborate funeral, which was actually modelled on those of previous monarchs. Number two? Well, uh, being the school holidays, there's lots of events going on for all the family to enjoy this month, and one of the highlights, I think, will be England's medieval festival at hurst Castle in East Sussex, which takes place from the 23rd to the 25th of August. And it's an annual event that's been taking place since the early 1990s, and it's got all the favourites, jousting, falconry, archery, and lots of living history stuff. Should, should be quite good fun. Sounds good. Thanks. Number three. And, well, finally, if you've been inspired by this month's cover feature all about Captain Cook, then look out for a new four-part documentary on The Great Explorer, which is showing on the History Channel this month. It begins on the 19th of August, and the presenter is Vanessa Collingridge, who you may know from Radio 4's Making History, and she also writes a column for us as well.
2: Indeed she does. OK, from things to do to things to read, let me ask Sue what's new in the world of history books. Sue, what shall we be reading this month?
6: OK, I'm looking at three books this month. Number one, The Penguin History of Modern China, 1850-2008, to by Jonathan Fenby. Now, uh, this is an accessible account of the modern history of the country that hosts the Olympic Games this year, as I'm sure you have noticed. Um, China's the th- world's third largest economy, but this modern success story is the result of a century and a half of often painful development. Uh, during that period, China has seen revolution, famine, war, both civil and international. So a very turbulent period.
2: Now, Fembe is a, a well-renowned journalist, uh, so I'm sure it's a good read, but why would we want to read this one?
6: Well, as China muscles its way onto the world stage, we could all do do with uh, knowing a bit more about the country. Um, However, its history is a bit of a battleground with competing claims and interpretations. Here, Jonathan Fenby has produced a well-balanced account, which is also authoritative, accessible and, as you said, well-written.
2: Okay, Your second choice is We Danced All Night by Martin Pugh, who's a, a noted academic and a member of our advisory panel. So what's this one all about?
6: OK, this is a sparkling new social history of Britain between the wars. Um, this is a period that's been dubbed the Long Weekend because it was bounded on either side by global conflict. It's an era of class warfare with contrasting images of hedonistic parties and bitter hunger marches. So a real time of contrast. It was also a time when modern consumerism was born and the car began to have a major social impact.
2: And why is this book good?
6: Well, it's aimed at the general reader, um, It's full of colourful anecdotes and a social history with a human face.
2: Good stuff. And finally, you're getting Medieval.
6: Yes, The Natural and the Supernatural in the Middle Ages by Robert Bartlett. Um, Rob Bartlett, you may of course have seen, was the charismatic but learned presenter on the BBC4 series Inside the Medieval Mind. His book looks at the Middle Ages, which are commonly held to be famously superstitious, uh, a time of miracles, magic and God, when supernatural and fantastical creatures might exist.
2: I I know it's good because I've read it, but what do you reckon?
6: Well, it's good because he shows that in spite of this reputation, it's a time when people were also sceptical and and there was inquiry and rational thought as well. And there's a chapter on Roger Bacon, the 13th century scholar, who argued that knowledge should be developed through experiment and observation. Like the series, it's engaging and thought-provoking.
2: Definitely a recommended read. Thanks, Sue. Now, aside from keeping on top of the ever-increasing stack of books that lands in the BBC History magazine office, Sue has been finding out what Ruth Goodman has been up to on her Victorian farm.
6: Today I'm talking to Ruth Goodman, who's spending a year living life on a recreated farm in Shropshire in the Victorian period. Ruth's a social and domestic historian whose previous TV work includes the series A Tudor Feast and Tales from the Green Valley, both for BBC Two. The latter explored life on a British farm in the 17th century. It attracted large audiences and had wide critical acclaim. So, Ruth, hello. Hello. How are
3: you doing? Uh, we're doing very well, actually. Yes, enjoying the new sunny weather, thank goodness.
6: Fantastic. Um, Now... When I watched Tales from the Green Valley, um, I was amazed at the detail that went into it. It had a real feeling of authenticity, um, from the clothing to the food to the tools. So how on earth do you go about preparing and researching a project like the Victorian farm beforehand?
3: you know obviously books are are just fabulous and the Victorian period is so exciting because there's so much out there. I'm particularly addicted to women's magazines Um, I've just found them an enormous fountain of information about the ordinary and the domestic and the social and people's attitudes what people are thinking Um, far more than you'd get in some sort of history book
6: I mean um, yes it must be so much more than the Tudor period which of course is what you were doing before. Oh absolutely I mean it's
3: sort of a bit like being let let loose in a sweet shop you know after (laughs) years and years years and years of hunting and sifting and trying to, you know, from tiny little scraps to suddenly be sort of wallowing in great mounds of information.
6: (laughs) Um, Now, you you very much specialise in hands-on history, if you like. Um, Mm. You you work with museums, historic houses, theatre and TV. Um, You were historical consultant for Shakespeare's Globe Theatre and you run sort of educational workshops for schools and museums. Um, What do you think is the value of such practical projects? I think that what they really do is make you ask questions.
3: Um, When you read books, which is fantastic, um, you know, you you sort of get pictures in your mind and you think you're understanding something and that's good. But if you then try and do something, it doesn't necessarily answer questions, but it does make you look at it from a completely different perspective. And you suddenly think, oh, hang on. Um, I'm not sure I really understood this right, you know, and you start asking different questions of the source material.
6: So, yeah, so it complements our theoretical knowledge. Yeah, and our, yes. most yes, definitely. I,
3: I think it's, 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 as I say, it's not about finding answers, it's about finding questions, finding ways of thinking.
6: Yes. Um, I, I was just looking at the um, the website for Tales from the Green Valley there. And um, there was a lovely quote from The Telegraph, which said, um, this should be compulsory for all school children struggling <laughs> with their history lessons, <laughs> um, which I thought was a great, a great quote. Um, Now, I spoke to you a couple of months ago, and you told me about the renovation you'd been doing on the farm and some of the domestic challenges you faced. Uh, You were Mm. desperately hurrying to prepare the farm for the busy spring season. So how's that Mm. all going?
3: Well, mostly good. Mostly good. Um, You know, we've got piglets and we've got lambs everywhere and castles, fine. We had a bit of problem with chickens, is Ah. our main main problem with chickens. Um, We had... A neighbour's dog who got into the yard and took seven in half an hour. Wow. Broad daylight. <laughs> My so that's, that's been a bit upsetting, really. Um, so that's the only down bit, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> Our turkeys, meanwhile, are doing brilliantly, and she's, she's on a really big clutch at the moment. She's got 11.
6: So sort of animal husbandry's been a, a big theme. Um, also, I guess you've been planting... I have, yes. Um, the garden's
3: sort of up and running. It's, it's not very large. We've kept it reasonably small because there simply isn't time mm. um, to do all of that. Uh, now that it's spring, I'm in the milking season. Um, I just, you know, struggle, frankly, to have enough time in, it, in any day. Yes. It's, a huge amount of work. I mean, it's really exciting. I'm really enjoying the cheese making. Um, I've never made big cheddars like this before, and they're huge, and they're vast, and they're fun, and I get to use <laughs> the most amazing Victorian press. Um, but it is just the number of hours it all takes is, yeah. <laughs> nice. The garden has to stay small, and I dare say it's going to get quite weedy because I just can't get out there as much as I'd like to.
6: Now, I also found a great quote from the Sunday Express about Tales from the Green Valley, uh, which called it reality TV with educational value. Um, and I suppose in a way it is reality TV, but uh, without the sort of brainless celebrities and the backstabbing, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully. I mean, you're there with Alex and Peter, um, mm-hmm. but it must be quite challenging being there and working together and, and facing all this together. Um, there must be times when it's a bit, it's a bit tricky.
3: Yeah, I mean actually we all get on quite well So it's not to much of a bother And the other thing is that although we seem to be all working together You know, you think we're on the project world well, Actually we've all got very different jobs During the day, you, you, you go for very long periods without seeing each other um, You know, I often don't see the boys from breakfast through till supper Right, which perhaps takes the pressure off and stops us getting grumpy with each
6: other <laughs> Indeed, I mean um, I, I loved with, um, with the Green Valley how each episode ended with you all sitting down to um, a, a meal together it all seemed very <laughs> cosy <laughs> so um, thanks very much for that and good luck with the rest of the project Thank you Well that was social historian Ruth Goodman telling us about the Victorian farm project that she's filming The project runs until the end of August and will be shown on BBC T later in the autumn
2: Finally, the cover feature in the magazine this month is about Captain Cook and the odd manner in which his untimely death was reported. Uh, Glyn Williams wrote that feature, and he's been telling me more about the famous explorer's life. Professor Williams, you have written a feature for this month's issue of the magazine, and it focuses on Captain Cook's death. Um, Perhaps you could briefly summarise Captain Cook's life for us to start with.
5: Yes, it follows a quite remarkable trajectory. He was born in the humblest of circumstances, son of a farm labourer in the northeast of England. He was apprenticed to, uh, to the North Sea coal trade. He rose steadily in that. And then I think one of the most remarkable and unexplained circumstances of his life, he turned down the offer of a mastership in the Whitby coal trade, a steady, Reasonably well paid job to join the Navy at the beginning of the war as naval seaman. No one has really fathomed why he did that. After the war, he served in Newfoundland waters. He really cut his teeth, I think, in surveying and charting in those very difficult waters. Spent five years there and then was offered command of his first Pacific voyage. But still, only a lieutenant offered a commission, but the Captain Cook, we refer to, relates really only to his second and third voyages. And his Pacific voyages were among, I think, the greatest of all seaborne voyages of exploration. He charted the coasts of New Zealand, east coast of Australia, he located dozens of Pacific islands, unknown or only slightly known. He crossed the Antarctic Circle in the North Pacific. He discovered Hawaii. He really, I think, if you want to summarise, drew the modern map of the Pacific.
2: Okay, I'll just take you back up for a second. So you say that there's a, a bit of a mystery surrounding why he first went went out to sea. Have you got any thoughts on on why he did that then?
5: suggestion I think I've got that it's ambition most seafaring people in the 18th century avoided the Royal Navy for all sorts of reasons and this is why the press gang was not commonly but on occasion used to fill the ranks of warships so why would Cook take what was demotion in a way Uh, Why would he take that? And I can only assume, because he is to show, I think, as the years develop, he has a very powerful intellect. He is far-seeing that he saw his future lying, not in the restricted confines of the North Sea coal trade, but rising in the ranks of the Royal Navy, where I think it's true to say talent in the 18th century did find its outlet, almost regardless of the circumstances from which his personnel came. Okay.
2: And you, you mentioned that um, he was a great explorer, and he, he, he basically he, he mapped much of the world. So, but would you be able to pinpoint his, his key achievements? What what did he really do?
5: Well, I think um, that is the first one. It's the quantity and the quality. ...of his exploration work, his surveying. Some of his charts were still in use a century after his death. So I think that's the first achievement. Secondly, I would say the fact that he carried out those long oceanic voyages... ...with very little loss of life to his crews. On his second voyage, for example, more than three years... He lost not a single man to scurvy. And scurvy in this period was the, the sort of age-old scourge, if you like, of long sea voyages. When he got back, people found it difficult to believe that he hadn't lost a single member of his crew to scurvy. And thirdly, I would say his attitude to the peoples of the Pacific He is far removed from the old-style explorer going in with cannon blazing, laying waste to protect his men. Cook was first ashore, always, in an open boat, landing on an unknown beach, confronted by obviously wary islanders. And he'd go ashore, unarmed, his hands outstretched in a gesture of welcome and friendship and that seems to me altogether exceptional it was to be imitated later but cook i think was the first
2: so from the from the research that you've done on him and obviously you've, you've been working on cook for for some time what sort of what sort of a man do you picture him as then how how, how do you see him as a, as a person
5: yeah it's a good question not one to which there's a straightforward answer. For all, for, for, um, for all his voluminous writings, journals in particular, he does not reveal very much about himself. Now and again, you get glimpses, and you get glimpses, I think, of a very ambitious man. One example, he wrote what seems to me to be an extraordinary sentence that he wanted to go not only farther than any man has been before, but as far as I think it possible for man to go. And this, as I say, coming from someone of humble background, who in the end became a captain in the Royal Navy, but then death cut him short. He obviously had a very calm, almost phlegmatic disposition for most of the time. We never hear of him panicking, whatever the shipboard emergency. But as time went on, and this is revealed, I think, very much so in his final, his third voyage, uh, his temper gets shorter. He becomes more passionate. There is much shouting, swearing, stamping on the deck when some unfortunate crew member commits an error. But above all, um, I think the words of uh, one of his shipboard companions on the second voyage, a young German naturalist, George Forster, has the key. There was, he said, about Cook, an iron perseverance. And that sums up Cook
2: for me. Okay. Did his, did his men on, on board ship respect him? What, how did, they, did, they, did they like him? What, what, what sort of sentiments did they express towards the man?
5: because as with almost any voyage in this period, we have very little in the way of a lower deck account. We have one or two um, written after the event and especially written after Cook's death. Um, And one of them says, for example, after Cook was killed in Hawaii, we all felt as though we'd lost our father But I think he was probably viewed, if he was viewed in that sort of paternal way, it was as a fairly stern father. He was an officer, a commanding officer in the Royal Navy, and he had to be stern. He had to be tough. What I think his his crew probably respected him for above all was his fairness. He seems not to have had favorites among the crew, on occasion, as I said, he would lose his temper, but he he was very rarely, if ever, vindictive towards some errant member of crew. So they obviously respected him, and it is significant that among his officers at least, and some crew members, men went back with him to the Pacific. They wouldn't have done that unless they had a very real regard for him.
2: Right. Now... As with all um, significant historical figures, they, they tend to get assessed, reassessed, reassessed again. Where where do we stand now in terms of, of the way we see Cook? Uh, what, what has recent scholarship told us about the man?
5: I think what recent scholarship has done is to probably emphasise a little bit more the collaborative nature of the achievement of the Cook voyages. There were good officers with him, There were outstanding naturalists, Joseph Banks, Johann Reinhold Forster, and others. There were good astronomers, people like William Wales. So he's not quite the sort of individualistic explorer that perhaps he used to be. Um, Even his role in fighting scurvy has now been cast into doubt. One medical historian has said Cook used the blunderbuss approach. He didn't know, nor did anyone, the cause of scurvy. What he did was to apply all suggested remedies. But to suggest that Cook realized that lemon juice was the most effective cure is quite misguided. But above all, I think there's now real doubt about what I suppose you can call his legacy, And this probably depends, well, a little bit on which part of the world you come from, Um, certainly on your own political views, and probably on your ethnic identity. Um, An Australian uh, um, Australian aboriginal writer has said, there are many Captain Cooks. And for most, particularly in what you can call the Western world, he is still a heroic figure one of the great individual explorers to rank with columbus and others but if you live in hawaii or if you're an australian Aboriginal, or if you are one of the first nations of british columbia then i think you see a different captain cook you see someone who was really an invader The man whose explorations led to a mass intrusion of outsiders that had destroyed the indigenous culture.
2: And where do you stand on that then as a a historian of the man? Do you think he should be celebrated or denigrated?
5: Oh, I think he should be um, celebrated. I don't believe that Cook can be held responsible for everything. That followed him. If you look at Australia, he charted the east coast of Australia. This was followed by settlement in New South Wales, and that was followed by ruthless settlers who almost exterminated the existing Aboriginal population. So there is a kind of line that you can draw from Cook's charting in 1770 of the east coast of Australia to the war against the Aborigines of the 19th century. But to hold Cook personally responsible for that war seems to me totally out of order.
2: Professor Williams, many thanks.
6: Now don't forget that we're giving away a free copy of our August issue to the first 100 people to call in. All you need to do is call 0844 848... 0098 quoting the code HIFREE zero eight zero eight. then you'll be sent a free copy of the magazine
2: OK, that's it for this month um, do please have a look at our website www.bbchistorymagazine.com to enter the Hadrian's Wall competition or to sign up for our new TV webmail or to have a chat on our forums and please do have a look out for next month's podcast when I'll be considering what's new to know about Pompeii with Mary Beard and I'll be talking to David Lodes about Queen Elizabeth I Hope you'll join us next month.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.